Hello there, and welcome to KDL's Stump the Librarian podcast, where your friendly neighborhood librarians put their research skills to the test to answer questions from you, the listener, or the butcher, the baker, or the candlestick maker. I'm Jill, and I'm here with Liz. Hi, Liz. Hi, Jill. And as always, we have some fun questions to answer, but before we get into the research, I was wondering, what's one of your hobbies? Um, that's a great question, Jill. I would say one of my hobbies is bowling. Are you a bowler, Jill? Um, I've bowled. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's one of my hobbies. Like if I said, let's go bowling, would you agree to that? Yeah, I would go bowling, <laughs> but I wouldn't break a hundred or oh, I'd be lucky if I did. Okay. Well, I mean, that's fine. It's, as long as you enjoy it. Yeah, it's fun. I have my own bowling ball, and it has my name on it. Wow. I know. I used to bowl on a league, and I really, I wouldn't say I'm a great bowler, but I enjoy bowling, and I would say it's a hobby, and I would definitely go bowling with you if you wanted to go. Yeah, I like bowling, but it's not one of my hobbies. What is one of your hobbies? Um, So one of my hobbies is building Lego sets. (laughs) That's a great hobby. I don't like to... Like free build. I don't have creativity like that. I like to follow the directions. Oh, yeah. So I got a Lego set for Christmas and I've been building it. And I was building it last night. It must be a big one. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, Hogsmeade. Oh, I, maybe one sure. of my hobbies is being a Harry Potter nerd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you combine that with Legos. Yeah. And it sounds it's like perfect. a lot of fun. I love that as a hobby. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> Thank you for sharing yours. Bowling. My son is a bowler, so he would think that's cool. I, I wish I was a bowler, but I just like to bowl. <laughs> I think that makes you a bowler. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> we'll have to go sometime. <laughs> All right. I have a question to get us going today. How come people don't have to pay for books at the library? And that question came from Alex, age seven, from Wyoming. So, all right, let's think about that. Now, do you remember getting your first library card, Joe? I do. You do? Yeah, I do. I was in kindergarten, and I know the librarian who gave it to me. Oh, wow. I used to work with her, and she signed my kids up, too. Oh, my gosh. I know. The circle of life. I know. Uh, when I was little, I used to visit my library too, but it was part of a community college. Oh. So it was a library that I remember seeing people studying and there was just a little children's section that was for me. But of course, the best days at school for me were library, library days. Day. Oh, oh yeah. my gosh. But how did all of those books get there? Let's talk about that. So Kent District Library, where we work, is a public library. And public libraries are paid for by the community they serve through property taxes. Oh, property taxes. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> Local governments rely on the taxes paid by homeowners or property managers to help provide services that benefit all residents, like schools, roads, police, fire department, and ambulances, and libraries. So part of owning a home or a property is paying money towards those services. So everybody pays a little so that everyone can benefit. 
So the tax rate or how much you pay varies from city to city. It even can vary from one part of the city to a different part of the city. Some funding for libraries comes from the state of Michigan, where we live, but most library funding comes from those property taxes. So if you live in a house, you pay a little bit, and everybody pays a little bit, and it adds up to a lot to provide these services for everybody. The library system itself then pays for the books and the services it provides. So ebooks or regular books or databases, they pay for all of that using a budget. So they know they're going to get all of this money in and they budget for how much they're going to spend on all of these things that they provide for the community. Sometimes there's a big donation from um, somebody or a specific person or a company to support a program or project. And sometimes there's a thing called an endowment fund, which is a planned giving, and they're set up to help the library grow in the future. So that's another way that they can pay for things that they provide to people who use the library. The library budgets and spending are transparent to taxpayers so they can see where their tax dollars are going. So you can simply visit KDL's website to see all of the thrilling data. (laughs) If you're a fan of pie charts, this is for you. But the first libraries in the United States were started a long time ago. In 1731, Ben Franklin established the Library Company of Philadelphia. But this was a subscription library, and people had to pay for it. There was a membership for people who wanted to use it, and people who didn't pay for it, they actually would pay for the specific book that they wanted to check out, oh. and then they would get the money back when they returned it. Okay. Isn't that interesting? interesting. I thought that was interesting. But, but in 1833, so 100 years later, in Peterborough, New Hampshire, there was the first library supported by taxes in the United States. So like our libraries are now. Though the building has been expanded and renovated over the years, it still exists today. You can go to their website and you can see a lot of the history of how this little tiny library has grown into a big library. And it's very modern like our libraries here. Um, The American Library Association was formed in 1876 at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. So librarians from all over came together, and their goal was to work more easily at a less expense so they could pool their resources and their knowledge to work together Mm -hmm. um, through the American Library Association. So even now, that American Library Association still exists, and we can still go to conferences and workshops where we can learn from one another. That makes sense, because if you have one little library in a town and another little library in a town, yep. you don't work with anyone. Right, right. So we can see how um, we're using our money to do different things and mm-hmm. share ideas with one another. I like so, it. So that is why people don't pay for books at the library. Oh, <laughs> what happens if your dog chews a book? Mm, has that happened to you, dog? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have to pay for that. Yeah, yeah. you do. do. But when you borrow it and bring it back, then you don't. Then you don't. Yeah. It's great. It's so great. I love the library. Me too. I really love the library. <laughs> do you have a fact of the day for us, Oh, Jill? from a library book. 
that, that you your dog didn't chew on. I'm not bringing this one home. It's <laughs> too expensive. Thankfully, he's just chewed up paperbacks. Um, so this one is called Atlas of Dogs. And I got to read. I got to read the. Do it. <laughs> explore the possum world oh. of pooches. I love a pun. Me too. I do. Uh, so this is a map book, but on the map of the world is all different dog breeds. And it's from the Lonely Planet for kids. And it's uh, new in October. And I'm going to read a fact about poodles because I love a poodle. Do you own a poodle? Two. Oh, fun. Well, they're actually cockapoos, but that's not in here because it's not really a breed. It's a mix of breeds, a mix between a cocker spaniel and a poodle. Great. Let's hear about it. Okay. So their name comes from an old German word meaning to splash. (laughs) Like puddle. Oh, do they like to swim? <laughs> they do. Yeah. So my two dogs, one of them really likes to swim and the other one doesn't like to swim. So it, it does still depend on the dog, sure. but poodles are bred to, to, to play in the water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, to swim. Mm-hmm. They actually um, were like uh, retriever dogs. Okay. Yeah. That's how they originally bred. But my dogs are little. So they're kind of designer dogs. They don't do any retrieving. They say, get it yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They would retrieve it if it was for them. Oh. Like, here's some bacon on the floor. Oh, sure. <laughs> I don't think they would bring that back to you. Though. Oh, no, that's theirs. Yeah. So this is a really great book. And if you're interested in dog breeds, it's just completely full of them. And then it's not um, photographs. It's actually illustrated pictures of the dog breeds. So that's kind of fun, too. Very cute. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. And I have a very exciting question that is based on that question that I had several episodes ago about how does weather happen? (laughs) So I just chose how does a volcano happen? And then I realized that a volcano is not really weather. It's not. But it does affect weather. Okay, let's hear about it. I'm really going to talk about how it affects weather, So, (laughs) but I'm still going to talk about how volcanoes happen. Okay. So a volcano is actually a landform. It's a landform on Earth, and you probably are picturing right now in your head a mountain. Are you picturing a mountain in your head, kind of? Um, like steaming mountain. I'm just thinking about, like, lava. Oh, yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. So usually you picture, like, a, a steaming mountain for a volcano, but the landform part is actually just the opening. It's the mm-hmm. vent in the Earth where molten rock is squeezed out of the Earth's surface. Um, Along with molten rock, volcanoes also release gas, ash, and they release solid rock. They look several different ways. Of course, they actually do look like mountains. Some of volcanoes look like mountains. Um, But they also look like, uh, kind of like, it's called, uh, maybe the terminology will help you think about what it looks like. It's called a cinder cone. Okay. So, because they kind of are flat on top. Yeah, flat on top because it's kind of open on the inside, and there's a crater inside. And there are a lot of volcanoes like that. Those that's actually the most common type of volcano. There's a lot of volcanoes like that you can hike right up to, oh. and then you can look down in. There's some that you can hike in. That have you ever done that? Before? I haven't. That sounds that's scary. It seems scary to me too, um, but you can do that. Okay. Um, so that's a different kind of volcano. And then there are like the remnants of a volcano that is just 
like a big crater. Okay. So crater like in Oregon is like that. Just that was a big crater left by a volcano. Yeah. And then there's a one more type of volcano that is really just a fissure in the earth and there's not that cylinder built up around it. And then it just kind of the molten rock oozes out. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Not, I know. It's really interesting that because I thought about volcano, just a mountain that's steaming. Um, but that that's not what it is. Uh, the volcano really refers to the vent in the earth, the opening. Um, now, all landforms do form around them, which can create the mountain or the cylinder, but the volcano part is that fissure. So um, one thing you might notice, I forgot to mention this when I said you can hike right up to them, um, is that sometimes it smells bad when you're hiking up to them because it smells like sulfur. Sulfur. Yeah. yeah. So that smells like rotten eggs. It's not a good smell. I think I remember smelling that in uh, Yellowstone, oh, yeah. which is all part of a big crater, mm-hmm. like a, of volcanic activity. So it's very stinky in all different parts of Yellowstone, <laughs> and it can kind of give you a headache oh. if you smell it too much. Um, but that's they don't all stink. Some you can hike right up to, and they don't stink, which is really interesting. Yeah. But I think I'd be scared. I think I'd be scared. <laughs> I don't know. It seems dangerous. <laughs> Um, so it certainly can be, um, any kind of hiking can be dangerous. Um, but there's actually a group of scientists who, um, kind of look at volcanic activity and they can give you a warning of when something might erupt. So you can safely hike somewhere and be pretty well assured that it's not just going to blow up on you. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's not like a cartoon or anything. No, no, it's not like that. There's like some warning that okay. we know. Um, we didn't used to, but now we have better understanding of them. So here's how they work. Okay, I'm ready. So far underneath the Earth's surface, there is a group of extremely hot rocks. They're so hot, they're kind of like liquid rock. And that's called magma. magma. Yeah, which is such a good word, <laughs> isn't it? It's a great it? word. <laughs> so the pressure from the Earth forces those hot rocks to come up and then eventually... They come up out of that crack in the earth, the volcano, that fissure in the earth. They come out of that, and then the magma changes names, and the hot rock becomes lava. Lava. Yeah, also a good word. So lava can do a couple things. It can just pour out of the fissure and run down the earth around the volcano. When it does that, um, it will either create that cinder cone around it, which just kind of adds to it, Mm -hmm. or it can... If it doesn't have that cinder cone there, it kind of just pools around um, or it can erupt. Yes, explode in the air, um, which then it's coming out really, really quickly. Or if it's in an enclosed mountain, it will like blast off the top of the mountain because it's coming out so quickly. Yes, that has, that has happened historically. We've seen that happen. When the hot lava is exploding or running out of the volcano, it is either yellow or white or bright red. You've probably seen a lot of pictures of it being bright red. But the hotter it is, the closer it is to yellow or bright white. Mm -hmm. That's how you know it's very hot. hot. It's so hot, you can't really get close to it. In fact, um, there's like estimates of the temperature, but I don't even know that we have exact numbers of temperature because... How could you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are different tools that scientists use to... you know, test out those kinds of things, but there's still a lot we don't know about the center of the earth. The earth is fascinating. The earth is so fascinating. Yeah. So there, and 
like I said, there were scientists that study um, volcanoes, but there's also scientists that just study different things kind of around volcanoes, like uh, different people study soil and some people study like the age of the earth and how the earth moves and all those kinds of different things. All of those things volcanoes are involved in. So different kinds of scientists are studying about volcanoes. So we do learn more about them, which is interesting. So as the lava cools, it turns black. So around a volcano, like if you go hike at those cinder cones, the earth is really like black and sooty and uh, it's really dirty. Like if you go hike there, you're going to get kind of covered in ash. So that's interesting. That is interesting. The ash can actually go for miles around where a volcano is erupted. And it can affect when the, um, in 2010, there was a volcano that erupted in Iceland and affected airplanes. Oh, wow. Couldn't um, fly or land because of so much ash in the air. Mm-hmm. And that's a way that weather can be affected because it it, uh, it has a cooling effect, like sure. cloud coverage kind yeah. of. Um, so the Earth's crust is made up of huge rocky pieces called tectonic plates. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plates, they move over the Earth. Most volcanoes form at the boundaries of these plates. So either where one plate pushes under another plate or one plate pulls away from another plate, that's where volcanoes are. Um, So that's important to know. Like you can look and see if you live near a volcano. So you don't need to be afraid all the time of a volcano erupting and disturbing your life. You can see where they they form because they form where these plates move. And and volcanoes are destructive. When they go off... um, they can, um, they can kill people. They also can destroy homes. Um, thankfully, we have scientists now who study volcanoes and who know when a volcano is going to erupt. Like there's some signs when there's going to be an eruption. There's like more steam and smoke and ash coming out of it um, and temperatures rise and things like that. So they can kind of predict, oh, this one might erupt. So mm-hmm. move people, evacuate people out of the area for safety. Sure. Um, so that is an important thing. But volcanoes, while they're destructive, they have also shaped our earth. They create landforms, like some of our islands are formed by volcanic activity. The rock they leave behind becomes uh, land that you can live on. Mm-hmm. And volcanic ash also breaks down into really good soil for growing things. And some of the minerals that we use, like copper and gold and some of those other um, minerals that we use um, in creating things are from volcanic activity, from like the rocks coming up from in the core of our earth. Wow. I know. That's great. There's So I linked a couple of articles. One is a Nat Geo article, which has really good pictures, as we always say about National Geographic, mm-hmm. and it's it's free. Some National Geographic stuff you have to pay for, but this this is a free one that I linked to. And the other one that I linked to is um, through our website, through um, Encyclopedia Britannica, and that was just a really good article about um, volcanoes and has a lengthy discussion about the history of volcanoes because vol- volcanoes have really affected our history on Earth because – before we had such good scientists that could tell you this is going to be a volcano, volcanoes wipe out like whole civilizations. Sure. The, the erupting kind, you know. Because right. people didn't know. They didn't know. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And so they've really changed the history of our world, which is really interesting. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that. So I'm going to 
refer you to that Encyclopedia Britannica and say, go check that out on our website. We have really good resources. And I don't know if you, have you ever read the I Survived series? I have read a few of them. Uh, yeah, yes. me too. And I haven't read this one, but there is one about I Survived the volcano um at Pompeii oh yeah so you can you can check that out it's you know historical fiction and find out more about what it might be like to survive a volcano erupting those books are pretty exciting they are exciting (laughs) yes well thanks for sharing all of that information about volcanoes I really learned a lot fascinating um, I have a book recommendation for Ooh, today. Do? It is a little sciencey too. Okay. It's not about volcanoes, but okay. um, the book I wanted to share is called Little Monarchs by Jonathan Case. And this is actually a graphic novel. So Ooh. if you are a graphic novel reader, you might want to check this one out. Um, this novel is set in the future in a world that experienced a sun shift, which made it impossible for mammals to live in the sunshine. The the only people that did survive the shift live underground during the day and they come out at night to avoid the sun. Maybe they're nocturnal now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So all of these people are living underground except for the main character is 10-year-old Evie and her caretaker named Flora. Now, Evie's parents are scientists, and they're working on a cure for the sun sickness that people can't live above ground. Mm -hmm. Um, They're living down in Mexico, and they're following monarchs, monarch butterflies, and they're using the scales of their wings to make an antidote. It doesn't hurt the monarchs, but they need them to make this antidote. So Flora, is Evie's caretaker, can also make this antidote, but it's only stable for a brief amount of time, and they have to take it every day. So Flora and Evie live in a van, and they travel the path of the monarchs. They're doing research, and they're trying to create a vaccine that would allow them to live in the sunshine all the time. Mm -hmm. They encounter a lot of danger, and frequently the roads aren't clear, trees fall and there's nobody to take care of them so there are these little robots that work to clear the trees from roads as they travel they just work autonomously (sighs) so I thought that was kind of interesting yeah throughout the graphic novel uh, we read Evie's journal entries some of them are scientific because she's kind of being schooled by Flora as they go but some of them are just reflecting on their journey And there are maps that show how they're traveling down the West Coast. So if you like maps, there's a lot of those in there. Um, They're survivors who are knowledgeable about the natural world. Evie is spunky and daring, but we see that um, she needs help from Flora a lot. And they encounter, in one part of the book, a child that they think maybe was abandoned um, and then she, they have to help figure out what to do with it if it's somebody who wandered out from below ground or somebody that got abandoned. So that was kind of a, a big scene in the book. But I could not put this book down. I read it cover to cover. Um, it was kind of funny. It was kind of thought-provoking. And there was a lot of adventure and suspense along the way. So if you like a graphic novel that's a little bit different, it's a little science-y, mm-hmm. um, and it's told in graphic novel style um, with lots of illustrations, you should check out Little Monarchs. And right now it's available in print only. It's not available as an ebook yet, but 
I would highly recommend you check it out. Ooh, that sounds really good. It was a really good book. Highly yeah. recommend. So what did you learn today, Liz? Oh my gosh, Jill. I learned so much about volcanoes today. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, I learned that they come in different shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. And I kind of only thought about them as having that flat top, but they look like mountains too. Mm-hmm. So I guess I learned that today. What did you learn today, yeah. Jill? Well, uh, I learned where the first public library was. Yeah. You asked me before and I guessed and I guessed wrong. <laughs> Good thing you didn't quiz me on the podcast. I didn't quiz you today. <laughs> no. Um, and I did not know. And that is really, I want to go look at their website now. Yeah, it's really cool. If you like history and like I love history. Photographs and stuff. I and thought it was really cool. I, I like, um, I guess this might be one of my hobbies. I like, uh, I like traveling <laughs> to libraries, wherever we travel. Oh my gosh. We like to go look at libraries. I do too. <laughs> I always look for the little library. Me so I'm too. like, let's go to the library. You're not Me alone too. in that, Jill. <laughs> I hope more people than just librarians like to do that. It's really fun. You can go into a public library even if you don't have a library card there. Sure. Yeah, we welcome people in here all the time. All Come the on time. in and look around. Yep. All right. Well, I I guess that's it for today. That is. Thanks for all of your amazing questions and helping us to learn more about our world too. For more information or to send us your own question, head to kdl.org forward slash stump. Tune in to the next episode where we answer more of your questions. Huge and special thanks to the KDL Programming Department, the KDL Marketing Department, and J.D. Delinsky for our intro and outro music. Thank you. Bye.